So first, it's wonderful to be here with you all this evening. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that um, I think I have at least five levels of privilege. So I'm obviously white. I'm a male, educated, um, etc. And so it's it's really important if there's anything that I say uh, that's well intended that lands uh, not well please let me know because I learn best from feedback. So I'd really welcome that. Um, so afterwards, if you could just let me know. Uh, what I'd like to do this evening is be deliberately, deliberately provocative um, because I don't think we have time on this planet not to be. And so my aim is to perhaps rile us up a little bit and encourage very challenging questions and inquiry and energy. So what I'm going to argue is two things. Not, not much because you can't take notes, so we'll keep it simple. One, I'm going to argue that I think the Buddha was a shoe-in for the Nobel Prize, should they have had one back then. And I will argue why that is. And the second thing I will say is that I think he laid out a formula that suggests that I'm going to use the term effortless awareness. And in particular, the emphasis here and this evening will be on effortlessness. Maybe all that's needed for awakening. And I will weave together uh, my very naive view of uh, Buddhist psychology and Buddhism together with my little less naive view of modern day science uh, and some of the work that my lab has done to, uh, to provide enough scaffolding for us to have a Lively discussion. Okay. And as as a reminder to myself more than anyone else, um, this, this dude said, um, you know, attachment to views causes suffering, and so um, it's a great way to start because. As a scientist, I cannot look in the mirror and call myself a scientist if I get attached to any views. And so what I'll put forward is some working hypotheses. And uh, we'll see what we can do with those. If it's helpful, I'll give a brief background, of very brief, of how I got into this mess. Uh, I was actually... Um, gone through a pretty remarkable relationship breakup right before starting medical school and so somehow conditions came together for me to start meditating on my first day of medical school um, and I spent six months falling asleep listening to John Cubbett's in cassette tapes <laughs> which was fun we got a good laugh over that now um, it somehow I stuck with it 
thick-headed and all. And um, throughout those eight years of graduate school, um, really had the opportunity to begin just practicing on my own. I was studying uh, medicine and, and immunology, and so was not actually interested in any of the science behind Buddhism or mindfulness or any of that. And I consider that a great gift, that I wasn't approaching it from a scientific perspective, but really just approaching practice from a practice perspective. At some point, started going on retreats, got a teacher, and got really interested in how my mind worked. So interested, in fact, that I shifted my career from molecular biology and immunology to psychiatry. It's the last thing I thought I would be was a psychiatrist. Um, but I was so blown away by my patients who were literally speaking the same words as, well, they weren't speaking Pali, but the same translated words that the Buddha was saying, craving, clinging. I, I, that could not be a coincidence. And the other thing that really inspired me was just how much they suffered and how marginalized they were in society and also marginalized they were by themselves. They were really good at beating themselves up. And in modern medicine, we have very few good treatment tools for addictions. If you uh, smoke and you quit smoking, the likely if one smokes and quits, the likelihood that one is going to stay quit one year later is 5%. For any of you that used to smoke, you can probably understand. That's tough. In the other addictions, actually, it doesn't get much better. So here we are with a modern-day problem, and now we have an epidemic of addiction, and it's not just opioids. It's food. The next one's technology. And we have very few tools to help. So that was really inspiring to me. So I started bringing together what I knew from my own practice. This is after practicing about 10 years in retooling uh, to learn neuroimaging and clinical studies and started my first work uh, with addictions. Uh, clinically in, with alcohol and cocaine use disorders, moved into smoking and whatnot. And it was actually working with a colleague that this bell went off And some of these concepts, starting with dependent origination, which was really hard for me to understand, 
could ask you to raise your hand if you've nailed dependent origination. <laughs> but I can guess how many hands we'd have raised. Yeah, that's a, that's a toughie. But guess what? That dude was, I say, I say dude with the utmost respect. The Buddha was just an amazing guy. I can only imagine. You know, many of you have probably heard Goenka in an interview with Tricycle Magazine called him a super scientist. He really got it. And it was dependent origination, apparently, that he was contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. So I certainly studied that hard, but it didn't help. (laughs) (laughs) But it was when I started to see and understand my patient's struggles and how I could relate to that. I didn't have a, didn't grow up with a classic addiction but when I really started to see them, I saw how many addictions I had and how the world is on fire, as is said. And that was, that was a light bulb moment for me when I started to see the connections between that and modern psychology. What I would argue is that the Buddha described the most fundamental learning process that we know in modern science 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, whenever it was. And he, d- he did this before paper was even invented. And you can distill it to core elements In modern day, we call this positive and negative reinforcement, operant conditioning, reward-based learning, reinforcement learning. There are a bunch of terms for this. Many of you may know the name B.F. Skinner. He was a famous behaviorist. Did all sorts of animal experiments showing that we we need to trigger a behavior and a result or a reward to learn. That's all we need. So for example, uh, for me it's chocolate. So if I see chocolate, I'm triggered to eat the chocolate. And my stomach feels better. So there's this reward that says eat some chocolate. Keep doing that. It's good. And that drives future behavior. And my smart brain says, you know, if that if you're stressed out, <laughs> eat some chocolate, you'll feel better. So I do that too. And so these two loops get set up. One is when I see chocolate or I'm happy or I associate chocolate with pleasant things. And another is when I associate chocolate with unpleasant things, making the pleasant continue and making the unpleasant go away. This is positive and negative reinforcement. So with a a friend, uh, Jake Davis, uh, who's a former monk, a poly scholar, 
philosopher, we looked at the parallels between dependent origination and operant conditioning, this positive and negative reinforcement, because to me this seemed like this was old wine and new bottles, that the Buddha had described this already. And it turns out that it's basically the same thing. We don't use the exact same terminology. You know, don't have 12 links described in operant conditioning. But the basic framework is the same. That can't be a coincidence. And one of, there are a couple of key features here. So I won't give you a quiz on the 12 links of dependent origination. But there are a couple of key parallels that are important to keep in mind. The first one, so at the top of the wheel is ignorance. And ignorance is driven by previous behavior. So we become conditioned to see the world a certain way, as in not see the world clearly. At least that's one way of interpreting ignorance, which is really interesting because in modern day psychology, we call that subjective bias. So if I learn to eat chocolate because it makes me feel good, I start walking around the world wearing I like chocolate glasses, <laughs> right? So I've learned chocolate tastes good, and so, or I might have learned that chocolate makes me feel good when I'm sad or stressed out. That's ignorance, because chocolate doesn't fix the root cause of my stress. So I want to emphasize that. It gives me temporary relief, but it doesn't fix anything. And in fact, just drives the process more. So the second thing I want to point out is that whole process, the 12 links of dependent origination, are described in terms of samsara, literally translated. I'm not a Pali scholar, but my understanding is endless wandering, at least that's the interpretation that I like. Endless wandering, because each time we eat chocolate to make ourselves feel better, we haven't fixed that root cause. It just keeps us doing that more and more and more, so we get stuck in that rut. It's like driving out in, on the beach and kind of getting stuck in the sand, and instead of slowly helping those tires get grip, we slam on the gas and we just dig ourselves in deeper. And that's also true for neural networks. The more we do a behavior, the more it becomes a habit, endless wandering. So for those that learn to smoke, to be cool, or to relieve stress. On average, in, in our studies, the uh, participants had started smoking at the age of 13. It's a good ripe age when your brain isn't formed yet. I've had uh, folks come in who've 
try to quit smoking after 40 years. So guess how many times they'd reinforce that loop? 293,000, give or take one or two. Yeah, that's just with one pack of cigarettes. And so my folks with two packs of cigarettes, double that. I haven't seen many people, fortunately, that smoke three packs. But historically, that's what chain smoking is all about. So imagine reinforcing that habit loop 293,000 times. So we can all maybe even just take a moment to reflect on any of our habit loops, what we go to, whether it's food or news feeds or whatever when when we're stressed or whatever. You know, the cute puppy videos on YouTube. I won't make you raise your hand. It's a lot of reinforcement. So that's really important to know and to map out. And over the last um, decade or so, as we've been uh, developing programs for for people who have no Buddhist background, really trying to see how we can help people map their minds, uh, we've come up with this um, these three steps or these three. We use this gears analogy because I, I like to ride my bicycle. And so the first gear, so if you remember nothing else this evening, I'll just give you these three gears as a way to anchor some of this talk. We think of this first gear as recognizing these habit loops, recognizing any element, whether we've been triggered, whether we're elbow into the potato chip bag, or whether we're postprandial or we're passed out on the couch after having finished said potato chip bag. Uh, we can notice the triggers, the behaviors, and the results. Just becoming aware of that, not having done anything else beyond mapping out that habit loop. What we've done in that moment is mapped out dependent origination. We've mapped out what the Buddha was contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. It's worth mapping. I promise you, you will not regret it. So that's, that's essential because if we are not aware of these loops, we won't change them, whatever our habits are. And I will even argue that every time we look in the mirror and say, yep, that's me, we're reifying a habit, a sense of health a sense of self. So, um, I love this quote from Alan Watts. He says, the self which he, the, I think he's, ego, the self which he has believed himself to be is nothing but a pattern of habits. I'll repeat that. Ego, the self which he has believed himself to be is nothing but a pattern of habits. And so everything from 
cigarettes to potato chips to smartphones to who we think we are. It goes very deep. So mapping that out is a good place to start. What then? <laughs> Run screaming. <laughs> no, not that helpful. But it is helpful. And this is where the Buddha was so inspirational. And if I uh, had the whole polycanon in, uh, you know, in written form on a boat and the boat was sinking and I had to rip out one page and leave the rest. And that page was too heavy. I had to rip out one line from that one page. I'll paraphrase. There's this line that really struck me. Basically, it says, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. Hmm. What the heck was he talking about? It wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. So what I'm going to argue is that the Buddha was talking about operant conditioning. Why? Because reward-based learning is based on rewards. It's not based on behavior. So if we want to change our behavior, we can't just say, okay, stop. I think Mr. Spock could do that, but apparently he didn't have many emotions to get in the way. Based on rewards. So what that means is that how rewarding a behavior is, is going to drive how strongly that gets reinforced, how strongly it gets laid down. We actually have a part of our brain that stores reward value. It's called the orbitofrontal cortex. It's in the prefrontal cortex. It's a later addition. And basically, how many of you have heard the uh, term BBO? The BBO? No? My college students haven't heard it either. I don't know where it came from, but it's a great term. The bigger, better offer. Okay? So if you ever got stood up for a date, like 15 minutes before your date, perhaps there was a BBO going on there. So what, and putting it in pragmatic terms, I think I think of everything in terms of chocolate. So for me, my orbitofrontal cortex has a very carefully cataloged library of chocolate. So 40% milk chocolate, forget about it. Yeah, I see some agreement in the room. We can all go around walk, wearing our dark chocolate glasses. We can argue with the milk chocolate lovers and or try to understand them, <laughs> judge them, right? Because that's judgment, right? So my brain says, no thank you for milk chocolate. It says I'll have 70% instead. And then it says, sea salt? Okay, sea salt. And then it says, 
who's making that chocolate? Is it Theo? Theo's good chocolate. I've actually visited their factory in Seattle. It's very good chocolate. And then there's green and blacks, 85% that's just got this smoothness that's unbelievable. And it goes on and on and on and on in my brain. So this is a very important part of our brain because it helps us make decisions. So if somebody says, you can have one piece of chocolate, my brain knows what to do. It says, pull out the catalog, what kind of chocolate is it, who makes it, how dark is it, blah, 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 is there sea salt? And then I can make a decision based on my previous behavior because I've tasted all these chocolates, right? This is from direct experience. This isn't theoretical. Uh, and I say that because that's really important because we often walk around this disembodied cognitive thinking head trying to thinking that, that it's actually in control. It's not. It's really our body that drives everything. This is why the body, I'll argue this is why the body was the first foundation of mindfulness. It's so important. That's what drives behavior. So this is what drives, is our direct experience. We can't. Our thinking mind does not hold a candle to our direct experience. The prefrontal cortex actually is the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed out, which is why we're, if we're dieting and we're hungry, it's really hard <laughs> to diet because our prefrontal cortex goes offline when we're hungry. It's not a great strategy for dieting. So we can't trust it. But we can trust this most basic learning mechanism that we have, reward-based learning. So if we know that reward-based learning is based on rewards, we can use that. It's really helpful. So I'll give you an example. We did this study with smokers trying to help people who were trying to quit smoking. We randomized them and did all this scientific stuff. But basically one group got mindfulness training. They didn't even know they were getting it. Another group got cognitive therapy. And in the mindfulness group, first night, we said, go ahead and smoke. And they looked at us like, I came here to quit smoking. Is this the experiment? You know, can we get on with it? And the reason we did this was back to what the Buddha said. It wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. So we said, smoke, but pay attention. Don't do anything else. Just smoke. But put your phones away and pay attention. What's it like when you smoke? Guess what? <laughs> One of my favorite quotes is this woman did this mindful smoking exercise. She said, mindful smoking smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals. Yuck. The Buddha would probably have the biggest grin on his face and be like, you got it. Exploring gratification to its end. Oh, cigarettes don't taste very good. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to convince ourselves. We don't have to tell ourselves anything. We can leave the shoulds in the closet, right? I should stop smoking. I should eat better. I should this. I should that. We can stop shooting all over ourselves, right? <laughs> this is really about moving from our head into our direct experience. That's what the Buddha was talking about. 
exploring gratification to its end because we become disenchanted. We don't have to force ourselves. We don't have to convince ourselves. We simply have to pay attention. In that study, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Hmm. That's interesting. And we could actually map it out to where people could be with their craving and not act on it. Break that link between craving and behavior. Right? We have an urge to act and we habitually act and we keep spinning it every time we do that. 293,000 times. But if we can pay attention and be with those cravings, we can break that link. And what helps motivate us to pay attention is becoming disenchanted with the behavior. Critical first step. And I would even argue that if you look at a translation, so dependent origination and Vedana, so feeling tone pleasant, unpleasant, leads to tanha, craving, leads to upadana, clinging. That's the most common translation I've seen. Also translated as sustenance or fuel, upadana, sustenance or fuel. And so if we use, I guess we could use this cigarette analogy. So imagine craving as a fire, right? It's not a new analogy. Some guy talked about that a lot. But think of upadana as fuel for that fire. So if we're craving cigarettes and each time we smoke, we're adding fuel to that fire, it's feeding back into that next round of rebirth in that next moment, that next cigarette smoke. So if we stop adding fuel to that fire, that fire eventually burns down over time. And we actually could see this mathematically the end of treatment, the people that quit and the people that didn't quit had the same level of craving. But three months later, people that continued to smoke, they continued to crave. The people that quit smoking, their craving died down over time. And so we could actually see this direct decoupling where people were able to be with their cravings and not act on them. And how that helped pull that fuel away from the fire. And that disenchantment is the beginning of, of driving that process. So if we think of first gear, step one is recognizing and mapping out these habit loops, mapping out dependent origination or operant conditioning, whatever you want to call it. The second step or the second gear, think of it as kindly and compassionately rubbing our face in the, in the poop, right? If you've ever trained a, trained a puppy and they poop on the floor, one technique, I don't know if it's the best one or the most humane one, so I'm not advocating this, but you rub their face in the poop. And the idea is if we rub the, our face in the poop, we can see how smelly it is, right? Just like this woman with her cigarette smoking. And this is also true for all other behaviors. I'll give you an example. One of my friends is a uh, food researcher at Yale, Dana Small. For her PhD thesis, you're going to sense a theme here. 
She did an experiment with chocolate. <laughs> what she did was she used a PET scanner, which means it's, uh, you can scan people's brain activity, but the, the neat thing about PET scanners is they can move their mouth while you're scanning it. With fMRI scanners, you can't move your mouth. It's motion it kills, it kills the signal you move your head at all so she could have them sit in the pet scanner and she could feed them chocolate so she let them pick out their favorite chocolate she would feed them chocolate as they were getting their brain scanned and all they had to do was say how much they liked it so imagine being in this experiment i'm getting paid to be spoon-fed chocolate giddy up and so, of course, it's their favorite chocolate. They start out rating it 10 out of 10. This is awesome. And then she feeds them some more. And they're like, yep, still my favorite chocolate. And then she feeds them some more. And they're like, yeah, I like this chocolate. And she feeds them some more. And they're like, I get it. <laughs> and she feeds them some more. And they start thinking, what did I sign up for? She feeds them some more, and they're thinking, did you get approval from the IRB for this? <laughs> and feeds them and feeds them and feeds them until they're hating the experience. I mean, it's probably a little strong, but she didn't torture anybody in this experiment. But they're basically thinking, I'm never signing up for a stupid science experiment again. I hate this. This was their favorite chocolate just a few minutes ago. And then they're hating it. Paying attention, right? So, and there's actually a brain region. I don't know if we'll get into it this evening or not. There's actually a brain region that, that gets activated at both ends of that spectrum when they want more and when they want less. The common denominator, that wanting, right? Getting caught up in wanting more, wanting less. So, food is a great, great example of how we can pay attention. We think of, in, in our eating program, we use this uh, little game, how little is enough, right? Just like the chocolate experiment. When does it start shifting from this is great to I've had enough? Because we often miss that inflection point because we're not paying attention. We're driven by that urge to satisfy something else. I'll give another example of this. I was working with some patients with binge eating disorder. I had a patient in particular who uh, her parents were survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide, and so you can only imagine what they went through. Immigrated to the United States, and her, and her mom started abusing her when she, just emotionally when she just <laughs> emotionally abusing her when she was about eight, and. What she learned was that if she ate food, as she described it, she could numb herself from the emotions. So when I saw her, she was about 30, was a very unhealthy weight, and would binge eat entire large pizzas in one sitting, 20 out of 30 days a month. And her habit loop was that she'd have a negative emotion, she would eat pizza, and she would numb herself. Another habit loop was after she binged, she would feel terrible about binging, and so she would 
binge again because that's all her brain knew how to do. And so sometimes she would binge multiple times a day. So you can see how this works for everything from things that we don't need to survive like cigarettes to things that are essential for survival like food, depending on how we get caught in them. So that second gear, I would argue, is the most important one. That's why that's the one line from the one page from all of the suttas I would put in my pocket or swallow or do something with to save it. Exploring gratification to its end. What that helps our orbitofrontal cortex do is update the reward value of particular behaviors. They might have been helpful in the past when we learned them, but we can actually see the true reward value now. It's kind of like taking money, it's putting it on our mattress 50 years ago and then pulling it out today and trying to go buy something at the store with it and the clerk looks at us like we're crazy. You can't buy milk for a dime or whatever because that reward value has changed. We need to pay attention so our brain can see whether our behaviors still have the same reward as they did previously. And that helps us start to become disenchanted and start to change the behavior. What it also does is free up some space. That orbital frontal cortex, remember, it's looking for the BBO. So if something like cigarettes or eating a whole sleeve of Oreos or whatever had a certain reward value and we paid attention, simply bringing awareness to that, that reward value dropped. Suddenly something else, there's space for something else to come in as that BBO. Well, there's YouTube. Cute puppy videos. Kitten videos if you don't like puppies. Baby videos if you don't like puppies or kittens. Endless distraction, right? Cornell West, he has this great term for phones, these weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> so why don't the puppy videos work? Well, our brains aren't set up you can't consume puppy, puppy videos to get you know, your essential amino acids. So our brains become habituated to behaviors. Then you see a puppy video and you're like, okay, I get it. Give me a cuter puppy, puppy video. And then you see a cuter one and eventually it's like, okay, no more. I've seen them all. For those of you that have binged on puppy videos, you know what I'm talking about. And then we look for puppies with kittens. And then we look for puppies with kittens with babies. And eventually we run out of you know, the cute things. So that formula is not sustainable. That also just reinforces the habit loop. Stressed out, watch puppy videos, feel a little bit better. Right? Become habituated, our brain says, give me something better. So that strategy doesn't work. So what can we substitute instead? Well, I would argue so we could we could sit down and meditate. Well I remember being on 
retreats in the middle of winter, sweating through t-shirts on meditation retreats. It, yeah, I'm sure many of you have been to IMS. It's a little drafty in the meditation all the times, or used to be. Um, so I tried to meditate. I certainly couldn't force my awareness to stay on my breath. It was boring as all get out. My mind had become habituated to my breath. You know, and so you can imagine going through the different objects to try to bring in those the equivalent of the cute puppy videos. Oh, my nostrils. Oh, breath at my belly. Oh, breath at my chest. Oh, how long is this retreat? <laughs> but I'd missed something fundamental. I hadn't paid attention to another essential teaching. This is in, uh, in many places in the suttas, but in the Anapanasati Sutta, there's, there's a particular description of the seven factors of awakening. And I say that it's particular because they're taught in a particular order. It goes... Mindfulness, then uh, Dhamma Vachaya, which can be translated as interest, or I like to translate it as curiosity. Virya, courageous energy. Piti, rapture, joy. Uh, tranquility, sapasati, tranquility, concentration, and then equanimity. So I hadn't read that, that playbook in the sense that this is a particular order on purpose. I'd been jumping right to step six, concentration. I'm just going to lock in and you know, grab onto it and hold on for dear life. Because that's what I'm supposed to do, right? Pay attention to my breath. Well, it turns out if we look at reward-based learning, it's based on rewards. Holding on for dear life is not exactly rewarding. <laughs> so, what did I miss? Well, awareness and curiosity. So when we're curious about something, how hard is it to pay attention? We're naturally drawn in because we're curious. So it actually doesn't take any effort when we're truly interested, when we're curious about something. And so that was really fascinating to me. Finally, I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is on purpose. If we pay attention and we bring interest to an object and we're curious about it, what happens next? Naturally, we become energized. And I love the translation courageous energy because we can bring we can dive right into anything in the worst conditions because we want to know. Not intellectually, but like we're just drawn in curiously. So it's interesting. Bring awareness and interest together. Bring mindfulness and interest together. It's like rubbing two sticks together. This fire pops. Energy naturally arises. It's like reading a good book. You open the book, it's interesting. Energized, like, oh, end of a long day, and now I can read. Boy, I get in bed and I can just read. And I'm enraptured. 
think of your favorite book, just enraptured. That's the fourth factor of awakening. It hap- naturally arises from the first, second, third. Another translation of PT is joy, right? Feels good. So right there, we see this loop that's new because curiosity can be substituted for these old other behaviors. It's intrinsic. It's, it's always available as compared to having to, you know, we don't have to buy it at the grocery store. Right? I'm out of curiosity. I better go to the store. Maybe we can get it on Peapod and have them deliver it. No. It's, it's always available. So instead of needing our puppy or chocolate or cigarette fix, we can substitute curiosity. And notice the difference in the reward value. So how long does the chocolate fix last? Forever? No. A little bit, not very long, short term. And it drives more habit loops. Curiosity always available. Does it drive more behavior? Might drive more curiosity because it feels good. It actually feels better. So con- consider craving versus curiosity. I don't know anybody that would say, "Oh, give me more craving. This is awesome." Leave the curiosity at this at home. And there's a particular quality that we can look at that helps us differentiate these two. So might be getting this wrong, but my understanding of the Abhidharma is that there are 12 unwholesome mind states. And one of those underlies all the other 11. Restlessness. Right? I hope I got that right. So that's interesting, because when we're craving, or when we're excited to watch cute puppy videos, we can be on the lookout. Does this feel restless or not? I won't answer it for you, but I shook my head. Right. Something to explore. Oh, and how does restlessness feel? Good? No, not that great. It actually drives us to do things. If we're bored, we're restless to get something excited, get something more interesting. If we're craving whatever we're craving, we're restless to get that thing consumed. If we're avoiding something, we're restless to get out of there. Does restlessness, if you had to pick, does restlessness feel contracted or expanded? Contracted. Okay. It's funny. I have selective hearing. So I heard contracted and I went with it. If anybody said expanded, I didn't hear you. (laughs) But you can explore that for yourself and see if it's true. What does craving feel like? Contracted or expanded? Contracted. What does curiosity feel like? Expansive. Hmm. That's interesting. You can even play with that. That's my favorite mantra. Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. It just feels wide. Like, hmm. Because we're drawn in. Hmm. So I won't go into it because we don't have time, but Long story short, we did a bunch of experiments with neuroimaging and all this stuff where we could actually give people feedback from their own brains in real time. 
we could we took this brain region that Dana Small had found to get activated when people are wanting more chocolate or wanting less chocolate. It's called the posterior cingulate cortex. We give people feedback from that brain region and we could link up their subjective experience with their brain activity. And what we found was that when people were getting caught up in their experience, their posterior cingulate was activated. When they're concentrated in an effortless way, deactivated. When they're practicing loving kindness, deactivated. When they're practicing choiceless awareness, deactivated. And in fact, there were other things. Curiosity was one interest, really deactivated. Tranquility, deactivated. Even in novice meditators, where they would just trip into tranquility, and it would deactivate. So we're even seeing neural correlates of this difference between contraction and expansion. That's really interesting. And if we take those and we put those into this reward-based learning system, that's all we need for our brain, is to look for the contracted versus expanded, because our brains know better. And lo and behold, all these practices that we are practicing can move us in the direction of expansion because I don't know why, but that's what happens. <laughs> because they do. That's what we've found. And in fact, this posterior cingulate cortex, it's part of this network of brain regions called the default mode network, and it's most known to be involved in self-referential processing. As in when we think about ourselves, past, future, activate the posterior cingulate like a Christmas tree, cravings for cigarettes, worrying, guilt, all these things. So working hypothesis is this is an experiential sense of self. That contraction says this is me and the rest of the world is out beyond that boundary, that beyond that contraction. So what happens when we start practicing loving kindness and it starts whoo, popping open? What happens when that gets really big? I'm sure many of you have had that experience where it's like you've lost that boundary between self and other because your loving kindness is so wide. Well, uh, yeah. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, this uh, psychologist, called that flow. He described it in terms that sounded very Buddhist. Selfless, timeless, effortless. And so that might even be a marker of this, this habit of self, this experiential sense of self. And it might even be a marker of where we move into this non-dual or no self territory. There's just awareness and stuff happening. So these seven factors of awakening happen on their own through reward-based learning, I would argue. So concentration happens effortlessly. It doesn't sustain itself effortfully. I'd certainly tried that. And if you can get it to sustain effortfully, please let me know your secret. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work because our reward-based learning system isn't set up that way. Our brains prefer non-effort to effort, just like my brain prefers 85% dark chocolate to milk chocolate. It's that simple. <laughs>
So that's third gear. I'll start to wrap this up. That's third gear. When our brain has become disenchanted with these things that cause pain. Okay, so let's take a concrete example. We think we have a great idea, and we go to a coworker, and we're like, "This is a great idea." And our coworker says, "That's not a great idea." How does that feel? Contracted or expanded? <laughs> right? Contracted. Carol Dweck, a researcher, uh, studied this in education along for a long time, called fixed versus growth mindset. We're fixed in our views. We don't, you know, we're contracted versus not fixed. Growth mindset is where we learn expanded so we can see this all the time when we're contracted whether it's a view whether it's chocolate whether it's getting cut off in traffic whatever it is that reinforcement process we can see how painful it is and simply seeing how painful it is it starts to unwind itself it starts to unwind itself no effort necessary and as it unwinds itself we can help that process along by bringing in those bbos right because unwinding is this expansion well loving kindness curiosity generosity how do those feel expanded so we can actually inject these bigger better offers what happens if you try to be generous? Like, oh, I really want to be generous. <laughs> Doesn't work that well. In fact, uh, I don't know if you've heard this in Dhamma talks or in uh, Dana talks. Um, there's actually a sutta that <laughs> has uncannily, it talks about three steps of giving. <laughs> See if I can remember it. The... Uh, The so it's it's generally re with regard to a lay person hearing a dhamma talk by a, a monastic, and so they're pleased by the talk. There's the trigger. They're inspired to give. There's the behavior, and they're gratified by giving. There's the reward. So there's no buyer's remorse or giver's remorse because it's it's literally paying it forward. It feels good to give when we're truly inspired. So even then, they're talking about reward-based learning. Isn't that amazing? So we can inject all these BBOs all the time, moment by moment. And we can start by just being aware, you know, that first step or the first gear, recognizing these habit loops. Second step, rubbing our face in the poop, right? <laughs> I like the question, and we do this with our eating program and anxiety program, asking ourselves, what do I get from this? Not thinking, what do I get from this, but really directly, experientially, in this moment, what do I get from this? When I eat the third cupcake, what do I get from this? When I worry and plan the 17th time about getting to the airport on time, what do I get from this? Is that add anything to the 16th or the 15th or the 14th or the 13th time? Probably not, right? We can explore that, but we certainly get more wound up. That's second gear, second step. Third step, we step out of the habit loop through simple 
awareness, curiosity. Because curiosity, that replacement for worrying, for eating, for whatever, is naturally self-sustaining in a way that moves us from contraction to expansion. And so there I would argue, just to bring this to a close, that the, the Buddha really had it all worked out. He knew this reward-based learning thing. He didn't call it that, didn't matter, but he knew how this worked. And everything came from that. Everything came from that. Awareness. Awareness, seeing cause and effect, and letting his brain do the rest. So, if you are inspired like I am by the Buddha, give you your mission should you choose to accept it. Which is simply pay attention. Don't try. Don't try anything else. Simply pay attention, cause and effect. That's all. And be patient with the process. The more aware we are of cause and effect, the more quickly our brain will be convinced because it will it will see the true signal over the noise, right? Because our brain has to, it's like, no, this isn't right because it's used to old habits. So it's going to question. We can say, okay, let's do it again. Let's do the experiment again. Let's do it again. Second gear, second gear, second gear, and get that noise out of the, you know, down to baseline and that true signal popping up, getting those p-values. You know, that's a statistically significant result. Our brain says, okay, I'll publish. (laughs) (laughs) So pay attention, look for cause and effect, and don't try to force it. The force just gets in the way gets in the way of us seeing clearly. So we'll stop there and be happy to take any questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.